Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. Hello, good evening. Welcome to Eyewitness News coming to you live from our studios here at number 11, Dr. Martin Loop in Adabraka in Accra. My name is Salom Adunu and I'm here with Nashika Caesar. Coming up over the next 90 minutes. The Minister of Finance had better go back to the drawing board and come back with a better proposal. I'm encouraging people not to agree to sign up to anything and if need be. We can all go to court. A contract is a contract and it has to be respected. And if you want to renegotiate it, come to the table, one, with humility. Former Chief Justice Sophia Kufu describes as wicked and unlawful attempts by government to include pensioner bondholders in debt exchange program. She said so today when she joined a group of pensioners who picketed at the finance ministry. We will tell you what her presence at the venue today means for the struggle. Still on Eyewitness News, the NDC slams Attorney General for asking the Auditor General to unpublish COVID-19 Special Audit Report which details how some 21 billion cities received for the pandemic was used. And later on, Eyewitness News Minority in Parliament takes issue with a proposed laying of Electoral Commission's constitutional instrument for election 2024, which, among other things, will make the Ghana card the only identity document for getting onto the electoral roll. Stay with 97.3 City FM for more on this and other stories on Eyewitness News and in business. Convener of the Individual Bondholders Forum, Senor Jose, assures individuals who do not wish to be part of government's domestic debt exchange program of the option to do so. So there is more business later on in the bulletin. Eyewitness News is live across the country on all our affiliates and around the globe at citynewsroom.com. Your comments are welcome via our WhatsApp line 0549-986-996. You can follow me on Twitter. At Salom, Adunu, the hashtag as always is City Newsroom. Sika has our first story. Former Chief Justice Sophia Kufu has described as inhumane and insensitive government's decision not to exempt the pensioner bondholders from the domestic debt exchange program. Since Monday, February 6, retiree holders of government bonds have picketed at the Finance Ministry, rejecting the 15% coupon rate at five years maturity offer proposed by the government. Speaking to the media after she joined the picketing with the pensioner bondholders at the Finance Ministry to support their demand for the exemption of the investment from the program, Sophia Kufu said the decision by the government is illegal. You know, um, there's a, a very famous poem by John Donne, and one of the most popular lines in there is, do not send to find out for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. When things happen like this, then you need to think, even if you're not personally affected, you tell yourself, if this is just by God's grace that I'm not included. Yes. And it's very heartbreaking to see people of, particularly of, of this, this age group, my age group, 
Some are a bit older than me. Some are somewhat younger than me. But these are all people who have worked. They have worked very hard. They could have, they could have left the country when others were going. They stayed. They worked for the nation. And we've had our ups and downs and ups and downs and everything. But bit by bit, a lot of us are from the, gen the generation where you were always encouraged to save for tomorrow and all that. Sometimes we've been through times when all your savings become nonsense because of some government policy. Then over the years, bit by bit, bit by bit, people have become more confident in in the economy, in, 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 in investment and all that. And uh, quite a number of people here today, when they retired last year, last two years, they've put everything into government bonds. And now all of a sudden, it's a, it's a contract, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And you, you virtually want to, at gunpoint, force them to, to agree with you that the, the, the repayment or the yield of their investment should be as you dictated. As you dictated. Why? And at the same time, why, why are we in the mess we are in? Nobody has fully explained to us. Yes, debt. Okay, fine. We took debts. What was it used for? Where's the accountability? Exactly what was it used for? You're not telling us about how you're going to be able to make things better. But just that, help me and I help you. No, you help yourself first. Let me see you doing something serious. Because we've seen these sort of things too many times. I'm over 70 now. And I'm, I'm no longer a government employee. My mouth has been ungagged and I'm talking and I'm saying what I feel. And it's important that the elderly in this nation should be respected. One, I find this wicked. I find it disrespectful. I find it unlawful. I find it totally wrong, period. Because you don't solve your problems by sacrificing your aged. That, that's the last thing you should do. Especially when you don't have any services that are specially geared at the comfort and the relief of the aged. The national insurance system has virtually collapsed. The elderly are buying their medications at normal commercial prices. And I know a lot of people who have told me that they have timed the way they did their in the investments so that at least every month there's something for them to be able to cover their medical bills with. Now people are asking pharmacists, oh, is it safe for me? Instead of two, can I take one a day? Or if in, instead of one, can I take half a day? How long can I continue like that before having a bad effect on me? Should it come to that after years of faithful service to the nation? So um, the Minister of Finance had better go back to the drawing board and come back with a better proposal because otherwise nobody, nobody is going to. Uh, I'm encouraging people not to agree to sign up to anything. Yes, and if need be, we can all go to court. That's all. A contract is a contract and it has to be respected. And if you want to renegotiate it, come to the table, one, with humility and come 
with a, a, a yesable proposition, not take it or leave it. Yes, it's all, our, all of us, it's our duty to show up our economy. But the, we voted government into power to take care of our economy. So we should see where the due diligence is before you tell an aged person <laughs> to, to lend you money. Please, they should come again. This doesn't, it's a non starter. So Maybe that's it. Well, I'm not speaking to the president. He has appointed somebody to take care of our money. And I remember when uh, Kenofuriata was first appointed uh, in, in, uh, in 20, what, 2017, I remember a, a statement he made that he sees his responsibility as Minister of Finance to protect the public purse. If you've not protected the public purse, why should it be us who should do that? Let's, we are singing the anchor, anthem. That was former Chief Justice Sophia Kufu reacting to the development of the program. The convener for the Individual Bondholders Forum, Senior Husi, said individuals who do not want to sign on to the program should exempt themselves. He spoke to City News' Hawaii Drusu on the City Prime News. What do you make of the concerns by the former Chief Justice? I can relate to her concerns and um, it's, it's fair um, and I think that the concerns of pensioners should be I mean, responded appropriately to. But um, I'm equally concerned that um, someone of her stature has very little faith and confidence in one who is family and also one who she has somewhat um, worked with in the past few years. I sometimes get lost as to what the pensioners are looking for, and I explain to you why. We're all looking for an exemption. The minister has been categorical that we can self-exempt, and he has also been categorical that he would pay. So what exactly are we looking for again from the finance minister? Are we looking for his assurance that he will honor his legal obligations already established. I will not initiate any kind of, 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 of activity to jeopardize the legitimate interests of individuals, including pensioners. It is unclear. And the other bit is that, however, for some pensioners, the proposals tabled by government save for the legal weaknesses. They may find that proposal very competent. You know, so if you have a view that the legal issues are not that much of a problem and you want to go for it, I don't think anyone should be stepping in your way. So we have actually recommended that people don't take it because we don't think it's the best deal. And for those who are non-pensioners, we think it's economically not great, legally so weak. If government were to fix any of these legal issues, the key legal issues, uh, maybe others may vary their positions. But for us, we still let people know you have to make your call. The decision is yours. It's not for seniors to make for you. Seniors' job and the IBF's job here is to educate you, empower you, and advocate right for you. 
which we have done. And I think that there's a movement in the process. Those who are going to go into this deal, the DDE, would get the best deal possible, or not the best deal possible, the best deal on the table. Freshness are getting 15% over five years. Non-freshness are getting 10% over five years. Previously, it was zero. It doesn't make it any, any better. But I think pensioners have an option. Individuals have an option. And the minister has been categorical. You have an option to stay out of it. And I will not harm you. I sat in the meeting and he spoke to me, looked in my face and told me, looked in the face of my colleague, he looked into the face of, of, the, of the head of the uh, individual pensioners uh, uh, forum and head. And he, he said it. He's been on on on, job, on on radio, and he said that. Um, we've also had him on in the in, with graphic, the foremost newspaper, in an interview. He said, hey, "Maybe we should wait for him to stay sane again on Tuesday when he goes to Parliament." But I am still at a loss as to what else others need from the minister. He said he can exempt. So I think that to all pensioners. The deal doesn't work for you, exempt. If it works for you, fine. My recommendation is simple. The deal, as legally structured right now, does not give the assurances that any investor would, would, would need, especially considering the immunity that government is trying to um, take for itself. Anyone who gives, takes that kind of immunity, in effect, is just planning to default. It's like somebody giving you a collateral. And coming to tell you that I want to, the loan I took from you, I gave you my car as a collateral. I'm having challenges with the loan. I want to see the repayment from, from April this year to April next year. But while I am thinking this, I want to take back the car as a collateral. That doesn't sound like somebody who really wants to pay. And that's my concern. If people think that you have problems with that, I think we should just do the right thing. Get exempt. And today is the last day. Today is the last day. I don't think picketing will solve that problem. I don't think screaming or shouting will solve that problem. Educating the team and equipping them with the power to exercise their right to self-exempt is what we need. So I encourage all pensioners, those in our, in, in our forum, those who are not part of our forum, please, self-exempt if it doesn't work for you. If you think it works for you, you have the right and responsibility to make your own decisions. Do we think that a minister is going to pay he has said he will pay. If you don't trust government, then obviously you should take the contract that is better. The better contract legally is the old bond, because that one you can enforce it. If you trust government too, then you may as well just trust in what Kenoforata and John Kuma have said, that they will pay. Either way, there's no reason to scream. There's only one thing to do. Act. Self-exempt. Self-exempt now. Senor Hussi is the convener for the Individual Bondholders Forum. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Your comments are welcome via our WhatsApp line 0549-986-996. A lot of your messages have been coming through. We'll take time and read some of them out. Uh, we will speak to some uh, stakeholders on, on today's happenings. The fact that today is the last day for uh, individual bondholders, especially to subscribe to uh, the new terms of the DDEP and indeed what the former Chief Justice's presence at the picketing 
center or at the finance ministry means for the struggle. We will speak to uh, the pensioners, individual bondholders, and speak to some other stakeholders as well. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. We'll take a short break, return with more on this. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. Yeah, welcome back. Still on issues on the domestic debt exchange program, meeting with leadership of the Pensioner Bondholders Forum and the Finance Minister ended inconclusively following concerns by the Finance Minister that old bonds may have limited tradability. Speaking to City News after the meeting, the convener of the forum, Dr. Edu Ananayinki, told the press that Minister's concerns does not suffice because the pensioners did not purchase the bond to be traded. But we also told him that we have explained that to our members that if we continue to hold on to the old bonds and as the new bonds come into the market, the old bonds, the tradability will be a problem because of the tax that is associated with it that government may be unable to honor its obligation and that kind of thing. So tradability will be there, problem of tradability. But our members are saying that they don't have a problem if they cannot trade their bonds. And they didn't buy the bonds to trade. They bought these bonds to hold on to maturity. What they are interested in is the coupons that they will be receiving. And in fact, some of us, some of them have already indicated that if he took even 15 years, he is not going to ask for that 15 years money to do anything. Many people might have bequeathed it to their children and, and their wills that look, if I'm not there, I have a bond. Go and take the, the proceeds of the bonds. So why is they are alive now, what they are thinking about is the coupons that will be coming to them regularly for them to buy, especially their medication. That was convener of the Pensioner Bondholders Forum, Dr. Idu Anani Enchi. Eyewitness News on 97.36. A number of your messages coming through uh, to us here. Uh, uh, General, okay, so Kati from Tema says, the former Chief Justice says she's not a government employee anymore, uh, that she's on guard and now she can speak her mind freely. Uh, this statement speaks volumes about government employees, uh, you say. Uh, Atibila Moses in Boku said, they say the economy is in crisis, yet National Cathedral is their priority, citizenship or spectatorship? Hmm. Akufuado Ghana, you say. Daniel Atia in Dalsuma said, good evening, Selon Wicked and Insensitive MPP government, according to uh, Justice Akufu. Indeed, the chicken, you say, has come home to roost. Uh, Gasti, uh, Gasti man in Brekum says, uh, this is a clear indication to Kenoforata to resign to save their party. Other people, too, will come out to show uh, their displeasure. Nana must sack him because we love uh, the party. Eyewitness News on 97.3 uh, uh, City FM. Uh, let's speak to uh, Dr. Professor Peter Corte, who is an economist uh, and economist with ESE, uh, University of Ghana, uh, Legon. Hello, good evening, sir. Welcome to the program. I, I know you've been following. What does the uh, the 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 
the the the visit or the joining of the former chief justice uh or the the, the, the protest of the former chief justice say about the struggle of the pensioners in respect of having their uh, you know individual bonds exempted from all these dde programs you see well good evening to your discerning uh listeners uh, joining them basically and and some of the points she raised uh basically expresses the sentiment that people hold uh, about this that has changed, especially with pensioners. Um, yes, we need to turn on to the IMF program, otherwise we would be facing economic, severe economic challenges that we admit. Um, financial institutions and others have signed on. But pensioners, in my view, should be exempted uh, because, as is being said, that is what they depend on for their medication and many other things. Uh, to be frank with you, as a Ghanaian, I feel embarrassed to see them picketing at the finance ministry uh, because you, these are people who have worked so hard to serve this nation, and I don't think they should spend their last few years doing this kind of thing. I, I, I don't find it uh, morally acceptable. I, I think... If we can do something about this, uh, the better. Um, if I join in, I think, give credence to what the pensioners are saying. Those below pension, yes, certainly uh, should sign on. Um, I mean, there's some um, haircuts or some penalty or something they may lose, but it's still better than nothing. Uh, it started from zero coupon to now. Uh, 10% or so. So um, we all sacrifice. But for pensioners, I'm sorry to say that we should exempt pensioners. I, I see. But, you know, what, what really is the matter? The finance minister said that uh, the individual bondholders, so the pensioners in, included, could self-exempt. And he said what he has said. He said he will honor, you know, the terms of the old bonds. How else should he say it for the pensioners, for example, to trust his words, there were individual bondholders in Plisita, and these pensioner individual bondholders. The individual bondholders have understood that to mean that they can exercise, you know, their their rights as and when they want to. They can decide to sign on to the new terms or hold on to their old terms, which they feel uh, is better. How different is the pensioner bondholders? It's the same arrangement. They can decide to self-exempt or they can decide to take up the new terms. Why are they not deciding to self-exempt? Why are they still expecting a finance minister to come out to categorically say, say, say what? You see, the, the challenge is that you are comparing two age categories, those below pension and those who are on pension. Some, uh, we cannot say God might call them anytime soon. It will be tomorrow. It will be five years. It will be ten years. So, that uncertainty remains. Now, if they remain on the old bonds, um, granted that they don't need to trade, then they are fine. If their finances are okay and nothing happens, then they don't need to trade their old bonds. They can hold on to maturity. Then they don't have a problem. The challenge there is that should something happen to you, these are old people. Tomorrow they can tell you the dialysis. 
Tomorrow they can tell you you need a heart uh, bypass. And that is where you may have to trade in your bond to raise money so you can survive. When that happens, the old bond will be worth very little because it's not tradable. I mean, you might hardly get anybody buying it. So that is where the challenge is. It's not like um, they can, if they can trade it easily and get their power value or suffer some small loss, that is fine. But from the discussion and from even what uh, we've had so far from government is that the old bond will lose significant value if you want to trade. If you hold, want to hold on to maturity, then that is fine. But that is not guaranteed for pensioners. I, I see. But I think the, the bigger part of their concern has to do with the, the, the coupon. I mean, the, the, having the, the yield or the interest pay them, you know, as and when they require it. But what can the finance minister really do about the tradability of the bonds? I mean, that essentially is out of his control. It's not uh, something that will be determined by the market. Yeah, that is determined by the market, but that's why they are asking to be exempted. So once they are exempted, then uh, from the debt exchange, and they can get their coupon, they can get their car Hello. Yes. So, I mean, the 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 tradability. People like Senor Hosi and Co. even have issues with the fact that those old bonds will not be tradable because those old bonds, you know, have higher yields. So, if you have, if you want to trade bonds with higher yields, you know, with somebody else, is it not likely that people will be more interested in trading those ones with the higher yields compared to the you know newer ones with with, with lower coupon rates? Unfortunately, no. When that happens, there will be very uh, few people in that market who will be willing to buy. At the moment, you try buying the bond, and, and you see what I, what I mean. I mean, you, you appreciate the problem, the enormity of the problem. Try buying the bond now. Nobody wants to buy. But even cocoa bills. If you have cocoa bills now, you want to trade. Nobody wants to buy it now because of the uncertainty surrounding the, the market. So uh, it's not easily tradable um, unless things improve um, when we stand on to the IMF program and the economy becomes better, then some of these stability challenges can be uh, eroded or removed. But at the current situation, it is so uncertain that nobody wants to lock him or himself into uh, this kind of challenge. I see. Back to the chief, former chief judge and some of the things she said. I mean, she said, yes, he said we are in debt, etc. But what was the money used for? Uh, does does that portray her as someone who has been out of touch with with happenings, or that you think is a general reflection of the middle class or people generally? I think these are questions that have been asked for time. Um, government in the past have tried to explain how they are used. If you pick the budget statements, you see government spending, government expenditure, and all all of that are explained in previous budget statements. Uh, we've also seen instances where not even people in government, but people in, in public sector, people in uh, uh, ministries, departments, agencies, have been abused some of these uh, funds or privileges. So the question basically is asking for accountability. But you think, I think uh, quite a number of this has been explained um, as to how these monies have been spent. Um, unfortunately, we cannot some of the loans and, and grants, we cannot actually 
pinpoint where they'd be spent to the last penny uh, because some were used as budget support, uh, some were used to support the budget. Because if you look at the revenue expenditure, we spend more than we earn in terms of revenue, and therefore uh, we tend to rely on some of this borrowing to finance government expenditure. Very well. Thanks so much, Professor Peter Korte, uh, economist uh, with the University of Ghana, for speaking to us on Eyewitness News. Some of your messages are still with us. Yonitif from Aflao says, I said, the government has messed up every fiber of this economy. Nothing is working. Government built on incompetence and share sloganeering will surely not stand the test of time. Uh, you say, Alan Enchantan says, government must, as a matter of utmost emergency, rescind its decision to include pensioner bondholders by force. Contracts are meant to be executed and not uh, disregarded. Uh, General Otega says that, good evening, Salom, our leaders created this mess and refused to accept responsibility. Instead of resorting to fiscal adjustment, they are arrogantly, uh, they arrogantly want to expropriate our mega savings. Shameless government, you say, they should save us this uh, platitudes and be real and serious. Eyewitness News on 97.3, City FM, Nashika has some more stories. Right. The Finance Minister, Ken Ufuriata, is scheduled to appear before Parliament on Thursday, February 16, 2023, to brief the House on Government Debt Exchange Program. This follows a directive by the Speaker of Parliament, Alban Bagbin, to the Business Committee of the House to summon the Finance Minister to make a policy brief on the program due to opposition the program has faced. Here is the Deputy Majority Leader, Alexander Afenyomakin, providing the business statement of Parliament for the ensuing week. The business committee met yesterday to agree on the business for the second week ending the 17th of February 2023. The speaker, it is our proposal that in total 38 questions be answered in the ensuing week, one agent and 37 regular questions. And that means the speaker can also, in accordance with order 72, admit statement from members. Of course, Mr. Speaker, depending on the nature of government business, papers may be laid and uh, affairs uh, made to the committees to do their work. And if there is any reports, committees may present their reports. And then, Mr. Speaker, if there is any motion to be debated, same can be done with consequential resolutions, if any, taken during the week. Mr. Speaker, um, we indicated that considering the volume of work, especially questions that have so far been filed, and the need to attend to all of these to enable members give the necessary feedback to their constituents, we urge all ministers to ensure punctuality and ensure that they get their responses to members on time. So we are appealing to ministers to liaise with the table office and uh, schedule their time to make room for business in this house. Mr. Speaker, on the issue of the domestic debt exchange program, first one to your directive, we engaged the Minister of Finance, and we have 
his assurance to be here on Thursday, the 16th of February. That was the Deputy Majority Leader Alexander Fenyomakin. Meanwhile, the minority in Parliament has raised a strong objection to the introduction of a constitutional instrument by the Electoral Commission in the business statement for the next week. The group contends that the CI was not part of the discussions agreed on at the committee meeting, hence its disapproval. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Uh, we, we want to just do a a bit of sports and uh, you know there's been uh, a story uh, we've been following that has to do with uh, Christian Achu and 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 all that has been happening in Turkey uh, his wife uh, Claire Ropiu says she's still praying and believes uh, the Ghanaian player is is alive the 31 year old footballer is unaccounted for following Monday's earthquake in Turkey rescue missions are still ongoing at the Hate Renaissance residence for Achu. Speaking to the BBC, uh, Cleropio called for rescue efforts to be expedited for her partner and other earthquake victims. Um, well, all I know is that currently his agent is in Turkey and uh, he's trying to get to the place where it happened. And we know that his building has been, um, well, they know where the building is and they're trying their best to rescue everybody. And they know that there are people still under the rubble, but the problem is that um, they don't have the equipment necessary to get them out. Um, So, yeah, that's, so he's still missing and we don't know where he is. Yeah. And that's just an unimaginable feeling for you to have to, wake up with every day and live with at the moment yeah especially for my children as well so yeah so it was quite um uh, yeah shocking as you can imagine if the club is confirming saying that he has been found and alive and taken to hospital and uh, 11 hours later um, my children had to hear it from the radio saying that they still don't know where he is and um so i know that his agent is there and they are trying their best to find him. So I trust that he will bring me, obviously, um, the news that I can trust. That, you know, if he sees him or speaks to him, um, yeah. So, but it's it's quite confusing, um, everything, yeah. And can you tell us when you last had contact with him? Um, he spoke to the children last time on uh, Saturday morning. Yeah, that was the last time that I've heard from him. I had a lot of missed calls on my phone from his sister, and um, then she just told me, and uh, yeah, and then I read the news. So, yeah. Well, all I can say is that for me, I know the rescuers are trying their best, hardworking day and night to rescue everybody. And um, I just feel for everybody who has, like, like me and my children, been in the unknown, not knowing if the family is alive or not. And I would just appeal for the Hattie Sport Club and the Turkish authorities and the British government to send out the equipment to get the people out that are still trapped in the rubble, especially for my partner and the father of my children as well. Because it's it's they they need the equipment to get them out. They can't get that deep without the equipment. So and the time is running. So, yeah. Yeah, the the, the time is running out. But of course, yeah. we have still seen dramatic rescues. People are still 
being pulled from the rubble, does that give you some hope? A bit, yeah. I still, I still pray and believe that he's alive. Well, that, um, that was um, Claire Ropiu, a partner of uh, Ghanaian footballer uh, Christian Achu. Uh, time is running out, but um, we are still praying that something positive uh, comes out. Uh, Pichichi um, is with our sports decks. Pichichi, what, what's, what's the latest on this? What are we picking up? What are we hearing? Rescue efforts are still ongoing. Is there anything new we know? Exactly. So, um, Salam, the rescue efforts have not stopped yet. Um, they are still ongoing at the Hatai Renaissance um, where Achu was staying before the earthquake happened. Um, I'm being told that the building in which he stayed was a very high and spread over a very large area. And that's why hundreds of people are working to save him. But um, he has not yet been reached. Um, so clearly, uh, that's been done. Yesterday also, there was a thermal camera which was used at the residence to, to, to know the number of people who are under the rubble. And it was confirmed that from the thermal camera, there were still people alive under the rubble. So that's the latest that they had as of yesterday. So as of today, what we know is that they are not giving up on the search for Christian Achu and those trapped under the rubble. They are still looking um, hardly hard for him. They are doing all they can to get to um, those who are still caught up in the rubble under the... Um, and that, that was quite a heart-wrenching yeah. I mean, interview the wife gave, um, the partner exactly. gave to, to the BBC. And what struck me is that time really is, is running out. Uh, it's been four or so days, uh, you know, under the rubble. And that appears like, I mean, the clock appears to be, to be ticking pretty fast for anybody in, the, in that kind of situation. What, 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 what have some of his colleagues been saying about, you know, the, the situation he finds himself in now? So this is the first time that um, his wife has spoken, Claire Rubio, and uh, we were wondering whether um, how she was feeling. Clearly, you heard from her; she wants uh, total uh, commitment and uh, search for her partner there. But earlier today, also Black Stars captain Andrea, you extended empathy for Achu and his family during this uh, difficult moment. Oh, very, very sad, very down for such a beautiful country, beautiful people. Um, it's difficult. It's, there are no words to describe how we all feel, not just me personally, but everyone. And for me also, you know, um, with the Christian situation, um, it's been difficult. The last few days, um, we're trying to speak to each other as players, trying to get hold of his family, trying to know what's happening. And, you know, we're, we're very sad and we're praying that he will be good, he will be okay. The whole of Ghana is praying for him to, to, to be good and okay because it's, it's a very difficult moment for for us, um, for the football world in Ghana, um, he was great national team asset. So we really wish him, wish him well. And for all the Turkish people, they know how what I feel for the for the country. And you know, I'm with them. And you know, may may God, you know, bless bless them and give them the heart to to sustain all this difficult moment. So, so, so yes, that, that, that was the day you captain yeah. of the Black Stars. He played with uh, Christian Achu uh, for many on many occasions. Yeah, they played for seven years at the Black Stars you from know. 2012 to 2019, mm. and so they know each other very well. They mm. are very close, and that's his message there for the family of mm. Achu. Earlier today, also uh, Medi Howe, he's the manager of uh, Achu's former club at Newcastle United, and uh, he's quite um, hopeful that there will be a positive ending to the ongoing search for the Ghanaian. Mm. Hugely worrying. Um, really, really enjoyed working with Christian. A great lad, great player. Um, our thoughts are with him, his family. We hope for some good news. We hope he's okay. Um, but been really concerned for him and his welfare this week.
And Boehm, are you able to support them at this time if they need it? Yeah, I mean, it's been difficult because there's been conflicting stories coming out um, about his whereabouts. So it's been very tough. I can't imagine how his family are feeling. Um, but from the bottom of our hearts, we wish him well. Um, yeah, and hope there's a, a positive ending. So that's the manager for Newcastle United, Eddie Howe, there. Well, at the moment, we know his agent is also in Turkey, Nana uh, Setre. So efforts are still ongoing. They're not mm. giving up yet on the missing Christian Achu. Mm. They believe that he's still there. Of course, they just we, have to we're, we're, we're also not giving up. We're also exactly. praying that, you know, Christian Achu uh, will be rescued. He'll be found. He'll be rescued. He will be fine. And, uh, yes, we keep praying. That's all we can do now. Thanks so much, Ivan, for two. Uh, Manso, uh, a.k.a. Pichichi of the City Sports team. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM will take a short break, return and look at matters of the Auditor General and what the NDC has been saying about that. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. Now, the National Democratic Congress has asked the Attorney General, Godfrey Damming, to immediately withdraw the letter to the Auditor General over the publication of the audit report on COVID-19 expenditure. According to the NDC, the act is unconstitutional. Uh, the party's National Communications Officer, uh, Sami Jemfi, has joined me on the line to help us appreciate the party's position on this matter. Hello, good evening, sir. Welcome to Eyewitness News. Why do you describe the Attorney General's advice to the Auditor General as unconstitutional? Thank you very much. Uh, the office of the Auditor General is the creation of the supreme law of the land, the 1992 Constitution, which governs the work of that office. And the Constitution is very, very clear. Uh, at Article 187, Clause 7, that the Auditor General is independent and not subject to the direction or control of any person or authority. And therefore, the attempt by the Attorney General, Godfrey Dame, to direct the Auditor General on how he should do his work is clearly unconstitutional and unacceptable. Um, the Auditor General, under the Audit Service Act of 2003, 584 is giving powers to conduct special audits, such as was conducted into COVID-19 expenditures by the Auditor General. And Section 23 of that law, the Audit Service Act of 2000, Act 584, enjoins the Auditor General to publish audit reports immediately he submits him to Parliament. And so what the Auditor General has done by publishing the special audit report on government's COVID-19 expenditures is in strict conformity with the law. In fact, that is what he is mandated by law to do, and that is what he has done. And so it is totally irresponsible 
for the Attorney General, who should know better, to be telling the Auditor General that he shouldn't obey the law. He should not do what the law of this country mandates him to do, but rather do what he, the Attorney General, sees fit. Is the Attorney General saying that he's not aware of Section 23 of the Audit Service Act that enjoins the Auditor General to publish audit reports? Indeed, he says he, 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 he makes this comment, you know, recognizing or knowing fully well the, the, that there's a provision as in Section 23, of, you know, of the Act 584. But before that, you know, what he is telling the Auditor General is, is a piece of advice. He said, I advise a withdrawal of the report. So I'm not sure that will be the so same that? as, you know, control or direction. He's advising him on the basis of an argument to withdraw the publication. The auditor, the attorney general of Ghana is a principal legal advisor to the government of Ghana. Mm -hmm. The auditor general is not part of the government of Ghana. And so he does not need the advice of the attorney general. That is an ungodly intrusion into the mandate of the auditor general. The auditor general is not subject to his advice. And as I've said, it is irresponsible for the Attorney General to be giving an advice which is expressly against the laws of this country. Section 23 of the Audit Service Act is clear. And as you have indicated, he acknowledges that it is letter, that he is mindful of Section 23, that imposes a duty on the Auditor General to publish that audit report. So, where from this so-called advice? You know, he, 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 yeah, he, has, yes, he, he makes the point, he makes the point in terms of section 23 that we have section 23 here and we have article 187 as well. These two, you know, provisions of the law appear to be saying two different things, which in actual fact must be complementary to each other. He says that I'm mindful of the provision of section 23 of Act 584, which seems to mandate the publication of the report as soon as they have been presented to the speaker to be laid before Parliament. However, the laws governing the functions of the Auditor General ought to be construed as a whole. And it says that the constitutional duty of the Auditor General to submit his reports to Parliament and Parliament's consequential obligation to debate and scrutinize him will be grossly prejudiced by a prior publication of the report. It means that Parliament will have to consider the report, but if you publish it to the reading of everybody before Parliament considers that report, that is prejudicial to the people who might be have been so named in, words, in the report. That, no, no. So in other words, what the Attorney General is saying, and I don't know whether you agree with him or not, but what he is saying is that Section 23 of the Audit Service Act is unconstitutional. Not, not, not necessarily, but you need to look at the intent of the law, the purpose what of the law. The intent of the law. The Auditor General is not bound by the Dummy's construction of the law. He is not bound by because this interpretation of the law is, with all due respect to the Attorney General, very flawed. Mm. Because there is nothing in Article 187 of the 1992 Constitution that contradicts Section 23 of the Audit Service Act. Mm. Article 187 of the Constitution doesn't say that the Auditor General, after he has conducted an audit and, 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 and put together a report, must wait for Parliament to consider the report before he publishes it. It is not there. Uh, Article 187 of the 1982 Constitution, when the Auditor General completes an audit and prepares a report, his work is done. 
His report is not affected by anything Parliament does. Article 186 of the Constitution says that that report should be submitted to Parliament for debate, not consideration, for debate. And when necessary, Parliament may, through a committee, address or deal with matters arising from that report. So Parliament is given a duty under the Constitution to deal with matters arising out of the Auditor General report where he deems it necessary and in the public interest. But the Auditor General is given a separate mandate to audit and prepare a report and a statute has given him a duty to publish that report immediately after he submits the report to Parliament. Where is the contradiction? What is so difficult about this that Godfrey cannot understand? In any case, let's even examine this so-called um, 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 construction of the law is urgent on the Auditor General. If or when a report is laid before Parliament, what happens to that report? The report automatically becomes a public document. Unless it is marked as confidential or secret document. And in this country, since the inception of this fourth republic, any time the Auditor General has laid before Parliament his report, those reports are deemed as public documents. What that means is that any member of the public can assess that report from the table office of, of Parliament or the public affairs uh, office of Parliament or through their members of Parliament who are giving copies of these public reports. And so what he is saying is, 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 is much ado, ado about nothing. If the Auditor General doesn't even publish the report on his website, as he is enjoined to do by Section 23 of the Audit Service Act, by laying it before Parliament, the document becomes published. It becomes a, a public document, and any member of the society, including media men, can assess it and publish it. Doesn't he know this basic fact? And so what we are saying is that it is not in the... I mean, Godfrey Dami does not have any right to advise the Auditor General. If he thinks that there is any law in our statutes which is unconstitutional, he can lay before Parliament an act to amend the law or to repeal the law. Until that is done, the law is the law. And the Auditor General cannot be working, okay, uh, with the individual or personal opinion or interpretation of the Attorney General. He can only work with what is written in the law, black and white. And again, let, let me also make the point that there is nothing prejudicial about the publication of an audit report. Let's get that straight. You can only make the point that the publication of audit reports by the Auditor General is prejudicial to the interest of auditees if such auditees are not given a hearing during the audit. But we know the standard procedure that the Auditor General uses for his work. All auditees are given a hearing in line with the auditory pattern rule by the Auditor General. And their responses are summarized and captured in this report. And the COVID-19 special audit report is no exception. When you read all the findings and recommendations of the Auditor General, you would realize that the responses of the auditees have been summarized and captured. And so publishing that report is not in any way prejudicial to the um, interest of auditees who might have been indicted in the report. In any case, the Auditor General's office is a public office. 
When the Auditor General uses public funds to conduct an audit and prepares a report on that audit, that report is a public document. And that's what Godfrey Dami cannot be advising or directing the Auditor General of Ghana not to be publishing such public reports or public documents. And so we believe that the Auditor General should be commended for doing what he is required to do under the laws of this country and not condemn as the uh, Attorney General has sought to do. And we think that the Attorney General must immediately redraw the letter that he has sent you because the letter has no basis in law. It has no legs to stand on. The Attorney General has no authority or right to even purport to advise the Auditor General. That is clearly unconstitutional. And all of us as Ghanaians should be worried about, you know, this latest development because we know how the former Auditor General, Yao Dumelevo, was hounded out of office by this corrupt Akufuado Bawumia government. Okay? Oh. Because he began to expose the corrupt activities of elements in this government. This is how it normally starts. And when we turn a blind eye to it and we encourage it, then they begin to do it with impunity. Actually, so so you, you are calling for... You are, calling for, you are calling for a withdrawal of the Attorney General's letter to the Auditor General. In the absence of that, of course, now he is written to the Auditor General. What should the Auditor General do with this letter? Well, we've called on the Auditor General to totally disregard the letter from the Attorney General. As saying it's unconstitutional, despicable, and totally distasteful. We should not be encouraging such acts from the Auditor General, who is the leader of the bar and should know better. And... We expect the, the Attorney General to acknowledge the fact that he has booked big time. Mm. Okay? And, 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 and do the needful by redrawing that letter. Very well. And we are also calling on the media and civil society organizations and other world meaning Ghanaians to condemn this, this ungodly intrusion and interference in the work of the Auditor General by well. the Attorney General. Samajevi, thanks so much for speaking to us, National Communications Thank Officer of the National Democratic Congress. Eyewitness News on 97.3 City FM. We'll take a short break and then City Business News will be up next on Galway. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. Time now for City Business News on Eyewitness News, powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Nashika Siza. Let's settle for the details. An economist and professor of finance at the University of Cape Coast, Professor John Gachi, is raising concerns about the continued silence of the Vice President, Dr. Mahamud Baumia, on the ongoing domestic debt exchange program. The government is embarking on a debt restructuring program to enable it to access a $3 billion loan from the IMF which will ultimately restore fiscal stability in the country. Professor Gachi insists that it is worrying that the vice president, who is also the head of government economic management team, will be silent on such an important policy. Professor Gachi has been speaking to business, City Business News on the matter. It is a fact that the vice president has been very minimal on the on the matter. And in fact, it is not clear whether he has made any frantic statement about debt testing program. So it's as if uh, it is for finance minister and the president. 
uh, he is uh, somehow excluded. But that is not supposed to be the case. Even though I don't think that the economic management team has that constitutional right, but the vice president was chosen because of his economic provisions, uh, his economic powers, uh, his understanding of the economy. That's why he was chosen, and that has been touted several times. Uh, so when economic management issue come up, and uh, the vice president is distancing himself from it, it's, uh, it should be a matter of concern to Ghanaians. But I believe it's also part of the, uh, the politics, internal politics going on. The vice president is uh, trying to avoid talking about the economy. Uh, I mean, pitching camp with uh, digitalization. Uh, so that he will use that for campaign. Professor John Gachi is an economist and professor of finance at the University of Cape Coast. Now the dean of the University of Ghana Business School, Professor Justice Bauli, has attributed the unsustainability of new businesses to the unfavorable microeconomic environment prevailing in the country. However, he believes this can be changed if young entrepreneurs refuse to embrace the status quo by leveraging on skills and competencies gained during the course of their studies. He made these comments at the Hollard Streetwise Finance Business Challenge in Accra. I think the first critical condition for any successful business, you know, is, is the macroeconomic environment in which you operate. And I have said many times that often we would urge young people to create businesses and try them as we're doing today. But they go out there and after a year or two, the businesses collapse. And it has to do with the kind of ecosystem that the, the businesses get to operate in. If you have high inflation, um, um, unavailable ca- capital or very high cost of capital, uh, rental is, is huge and people must have a place where their business can be physically located. But it is not impossible. Uh, in other jurisdictions it's happened. And one of the ways by which that can happen is for young people to know how to package their ideas and their business. Because the banks have money that belongs to people also. So if a bank must give you money, they must be sure that the money will get back to them in the way that they can pass on to the person who gave the money to them. And one way to do that is to go through processes that we do, that we have put in place in the business school. So all in all, macroeconomic environment, we do not have control over. Um, the ability to scale those challenges and obstacles, we are able to teach. And that is what we do best. Professor Justice Bowley is the Dean of the University of Ghana Business School. Finally, stakeholders in the agricultural sector are lamenting the spike in the cost of duty at the ports due to the exclusion of the agro-product in the tax exemptions law. Parliament last year passed the Tax Exemptions Bill 2022 to provide a tax exemption regime in the country. Speaking to City Business News on the sidelines of the launch of the Agritech West Africa Food and Beverage Ghana 2023, Programs Manager for Crop Life Ghana, Kadiru Rashad, stressed that the situation must be reviewed to save the agricultural sector in the country. Most of the companies who are bringing in fertilizers and pesticides have their containers locked up at the ports. They have their containers locked up at the port basically because the taxes are too much. And we intercepted a letter that was dated the 10th January 2023, where the Ministry of Agriculture wrote to the Ministry of Finance to grant special tax exemptions to agri-inputs. And as it is now, this letter has not been worked on by the Ministry of Finance. And then our member companies are still paying these high duties and the high taxes on the import. For instance, uh, prior to the 
before the tax exemptions were taken out, a member company would usually uh, import a 40-feeder container for, and the taxes he would pay if the exemptions were taken out would have been close to 25,000 Ghana cities. But as it is now, we have reports that they are paying over 135,000 Ghana cities for a 40-feeder container, and some are even paying more. So what it means is that this is going to, if, if the exemptions are not granted, then they will have no option than to pass on the cost onto the farmer. And when they pass on the cost onto the farmer, uh, you and I, your guests will be right. Pro- cost of inputs are going to go high. That was the program's manager of Corp for Life Ghana, Kadiru Rashad. That's all for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was powered by your most comprehensive business website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Nashika Caesar. Up next is Point Blank. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Twenty minutes to the top of the hour. Welcome to the point blank segment of Eyewitness News. My name is Selom Adunu. Tonight on Point Blank, we bring you portions of a presentation by the former chairman of the Electoral Commission, Dr. Kojo Afarijan, on how to avoid electoral violence in Africa. Let's take a listen. But in spite of the differences, some of the key internal activities of political parties such as the contest for leadership positions and the primaries to choose the party's parliamentary or presidential candidate may arouse serious internal disagreements leading to violence. In fact, in the past, the internal feuds of some of the political parties in Kenya, for example, caused more violence than during the election campaign. Apart from the fact that the activities of the Electoral Commission and the political parties may easily arouse disagreement and conflict, there are other veritable sources of disagreement in the general environment. Without claiming to be exhaustive, I wish to call attention to some of these sources in a randomly arranged fashion. Madam Chair, let me start off with three examples from Ghana of what I refer to as plain lack of understanding of some aspect of the electoral process. And all the three relate to election day happenings. Example one. On election day, a presiding officer, along with the other election officials and some party agents, decide to carry the election materials and walk to the police station because it is getting to time stipulated for the election to start. But the police escort is nowhere to be found. On their way, they are set upon and violently attacked. 
I believe that any person who knows what a presiding officer is required to do at the polling station before voting starts will not do such a thing. In fact, to avoid distribution problems and delays in starting the poll, election materials are given to presiding officers three days ahead of election day in some countries, even in Africa. They give the materials to the presiding officers three days. In Ghana, if we give them to them to go and keep in the room overnight, they may not, they may not be alive <coughs> to conduct the election. Yes, they may not be alive to conduct the election. Example two. Election officials and materials arrive late at various polling stations on election day. Literally, everybody is up in arms. And the Electoral Commission's offices are saturated with irate callers demanding that voting be extended for various durations of time. Somebody say, one hour, this person will say, one and a half hours. That is completely unnecessary. Why? Because automatic extension of the voting time is built into our election law. What does the law say? The law says that if at the time that the polling is supposed to end, there are voters in the queue, all of them should be allowed to vote before the station officially closes, no matter how long it takes. See, that is why in practice we say that when five o'clock comes, the security person go and stand at the end of the queue. Which means if you stand behind the, if you are standing behind the police person or whoever, it means you were not there at five o'clock and you will not be taken care of. See, a presiding officer knows the law. And presiding officers need nobody's permission to extend the voting time. The presiding officer won't call me because I don't know that the uh, election in Bonkurugu uh, Yuyo, uh, what time it started? If I'm in Accra, I don't know what time the election started in in, uh, in Enyimu. So we built into the law right, that at 5 o'clock, if there are people in the queue, if it will take you up to 10 o'clock, take care of them, you do so. So automatic extension is built into the law. And there is no need, you know, to be shouting, fighting, and doing all kinds of things because the election materials are variable. late. Example three. Party agents refuse to sign the polling station result forms. 
and sometimes they, th they threaten to beat you because they are macho people. So they threaten to beat you if you uh, try to convince them to, to sign. So whether they do so on their own volition or under instruction from somebody, refusing to sign the, 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 the pink sheet, as we call it in Ghana, does not automatically invalidate the election result. Even some candidates believe that the, if the, 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 the agent doesn't sign, it means the results are invalid. And we are even sometimes told that the candidates tell the party, if I lose very badly, don't sign it. <laughs> Thinking that thereby it will be invalidated. No. Refusing to sign the pink sheet does not automatically invalidate the election result. The, what does the law say? The law says if you are refusing to sign, you must give reason in writing at the police station why you will not sign it. And then the electoral commission will later look into the reason that you have given. If you have not written any such thing, you can ignore it. So it is important to remember that being an agent at a police station is brainwork. It's not wrong. Are you mature? Can you fight? You're not going to fight at the police station. It's brainwork. The person must understand what is going on so that it can raise about this thing. But a lot of tension, a lot of uh, conflict is built. In fact, I have said many times that given the importance of the pink sheet, and we'll see later on I'm talking about this, I think nobody is too big to serve his or her party as an agent on election day. Nobody. Unfortunately, I've seen at some elections some very big people, you know, serving as agents. Don't go and recruit no entities to go and do the work at the police station. It's been work. Alright. But I'm now out to do campaigning. Yes. So these are three examples of people who are acting violently simply because they don't understand process sufficiently. Right. Now campaigning is as a source of ideally political campaigning offers candidates the opportunity to indicate what they will do to benefit the people of a constituency or the entire country as the case may be if they are voted into power. That is what campaigning is about. Tell the people what you will do for them when you come into power. But in doing so, 
they must regard other candidates as legitimate aspirants to the positions that they seek to occupy. Basically, that is what clean campaigning is all about. Madam, against the backdrop, this backdrop, I wish to single out two things in particular about campaigning, namely unclean campaigning and the abuse of incumbency. A campaign is unclean if insert on issues of relevance to the people, it is littered with insults, hate speech, and unfounded allegations. It arouses ethnic or racial sentiment or is characterized by a lack of respect for other candidates seeking the same office. Let me quickly give you an example. As an election observer in Zimbabwe, I was once shocked by how the late President Mugabe described his main opponent and the reaction of the audience at a big rally in Harare. He said the opponent had a big head, but the head was filled with wool and not brain water. And he kept saying, woo, 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 to the wild, you know, applause of the audience. Utter disrespect for a person seeking the same position as you. That's an unclean campaign. Abuse of incumbency means that the government or its surrogates misuse their power, their power, the power that they have. The abuse takes various forms in the emerging democracies. But let us take particular notice of the following four. One, the government dominates the state media. And I've seen, been to places where the government monopolized it, not just dominated. Two, authorities close down media facilities without recourse to law. It's happening in Nigeria, as of now. <laughs> Three, State resources, like vehicles, are used in support of the campaigns of the ruling party. And four, elaborate ceremonies are organized to relaunch old projects to create the impression that they are All these are forms of the abuse of incumbency. It's your money, my money, that they are using to do that. 
<laughs> Generally, campaigning towards a general election may arouse disagreement with other political parties and even the Electoral Commission. But unclean campaigning and the abuse of incumbency are matters that can promptly attract violent reaction. Another one that we call claim to exclusive domain. The claim may be based on ethnicity. Oh, this is a, a camp party. This is uh, an other party. This is Igbo party. This is Hausa. The claim to exclusive domain may be based on ethnicity or religion. This is a Christian party. <laughs> or local dignitaries like chiefs who are affiliated to specific political parties. And they use that to create a no-go area for other political parties. Should another political party dare to go to such a place to campaign, it is likely to be met with violence because it is considered to be an invasion of territory. You can't come here. Sometimes the chief says, I don't want anybody to, co to contest the incumbent um, candidate. I'm satisfied with him. So I don't want anybody to contest him. So, so this claim to, to me is also a source of trouble. The use of thugs, the use of thugs, political Parties and candidates often use talks to intimidate, harass, and disrupt meetings and rise of other parties, and to inflict violence on their opponents, and even ordinary citizens known or perceived to belong to other political parties. This is a worrying matter in many emerging democracies. Madam, the next one that I want to briefly mention as a source is vote buying. Vote buying. In simple terms, vote buying is a two-way street involving buyers and sellers of votes. Politicians are the buyers, and they can buy votes from voters or election officials. And the reason why politicians buy votes is straightforward for purposes of winning elections. What is more difficult to unravel are the reasons why voters sell their votes. Poverty and illiteracy are often cited as factors. I don't discount that. 
in a recent report on the subject of vote buying, some voters said that politicians make a lot of money when they win. So it is right to take some of that money if they want you to vote for them. Others went a bit further and said that while they make lots of money, in between elections, they don't do anything that benefits the people. So election time is a sort, uh, sort of tax time. Madam Chair, vote buying is an age-old phenomenon. With your indulgence, I will tell a small story that indicates my personal concern about vote buying. Some years back, the Catholic Liberty Council of Nigeria invited me to speak to them about elections at their annual meeting in Benin City. They left the title and content of my speech entirely to me, with a rider that they hope to gather from my speech information that will be helpful in educating their members about the importance of elections in a democracy. I decided to title my speech, Why Boats Must Count. Incidentally, that speech predated the formation of the Let My Boat Count movement in Ghana. So you can understand why I would be happy about the formation of the movement. Unfortunately, the movement appears to be to be visibly missing in action these days. So that was uh, Kojo Afarijan, Dr. Kojo Afarijan, former chairman of the Electoral Commission of Ghana, speaking at a Rotary Ghana event on how to avoid electoral violence in Africa. That's our show for tonight and, of course, for the week. The show has been produced by Beverly London and Sami Wiafi. Technical assistance has been given by Daniel Squashi. Earlier you heard Nashika Caesar. My name is Salom Adonu. Make a date with me tomorrow on the big issue on the same dial at 9 a.m. as we interrogate the big stories for the week. Up next is Sports Panorama. And the boys are ready. Have a good evening. City News. We speak first. Reach our hotline on 0302-224959. And get interactive on Facebook, City 97.3 FM, and on Twitter at City 973.